we read the first four verses of Luke's Gospel, where Luke says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to me also to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Thank you, John. Thank you, Brian. Last week, Robin led us in the Book of Common Prayer, prayer for the first Sunday in Advent. Uh, and as this Sunday's theme ties it with Bible Sunday, the second Sunday in Advent, let me lead you in prayer using the collect for the second Sunday in Advent from the Book of Common Prayer. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, Grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may enhance and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Saviour Jesus Christ. Amen. For many people, Christmas is a time when the boundaries between fact and fantasy become a little bit blurred. In a study of children's prayers, David Elkin found that one five-year-old girl described prayer as being about God... Rabbits, dogs, and fairies and deer, and Santa Claus, and turkeys and pheasants, and Jesus, and Mary, and Mary's little baby. Quite a collection of different bits and pieces included there. And it's not unusual for children to muddle up Father Christmas and God. After all, they are both invisible beings who are supposed to keep an eye on children to make sure they're good. You may have been blessed this year already to hear that Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. It's all tied up with how people perceive God. In her book, Flights of Fancy, Leaps of Faith, Cindy Delcart records how one parent, talking about how her children are into fantasy, said, I love fantasy myself. And that whole child feeling, the whole childhood concept of getting whatever you want, everything you could possibly want from this wonderful person who does all these wonderful things for you. Who's she talking about there? Is it Father Christmas? Probably. But that's how some people think of God as well. This wonderful person who does all these wonderful things for you and gives you everything you could possibly want. 
but is that really what God is like? Or are we just muddling up God and Father Christmas a little bit? Where does fact and fantasy, where does one begin and the other one end? And it's accepted that as children grow up, they tend to stop believing in Father Christmas. I think I can say that in the present company. It's almost like a rite of passage. The story is told of one dad being asked if he was really Santa Claus. And he admitted that actually, yes, he was. So his son thought for a bit and then said, so are you the tooth fairy too? (laughs) Yeah, I'm afraid I am. And the Easter bunny? Yeah, yeah, that's me. And God as well? Was the next question. Where does reality end and fantasy begin? And there are bits in the Christmas story, aren't there, that just make the whole thing seem a bit surreal. Angels popping up all over the place, a baby being born to a virgin, a star guiding mysterious wise men from the east to find the infant king. And bits that we can get in our heads, like a stable and a donkey, well, they're not actually mentioned in the story at all. It's all a long way from life as we know it. And people respond to these stories in different ways, don't they? There are those who believe the accounts as historical fact on the basis that it's in the Bible, therefore it must be true. There are others who need to suspend their disbelief a little bit to be able to engage with the Christmas story. And we might have both types of people here listening to this sermon. In an essay on knowledge, belief and faith, the philosopher Anthony Kenny refers to Richard Dawkins' controversial views on instilling religious beliefs in children. And he says, I doubt if Dawkins objects to telling children about Santa Claus. doesn't lead to an adult society of bigoted Santa Clausians. Many intellectual Christians, as they mature, abandon other bits of the Christmas story. I know priests in good standing who don't believe that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Disbelieving in religious narratives, however, doesn't necessarily mean discarding them. It means removing them from the history section of one's mind into the poetry section. How do you react to that? And when you listen to the Christmas story, where do you file it in your mind? Under history or poetry? And if you're a Christian, what kind of Christian are you? Do you meet the baby Jesus on the firm ground of historical certainty? in the more ethereal sphere of poetry, or indeed in the realm of confectionery. But let me make it quite clear at this point. A Christian is someone who has put their faith in Jesus. However, they've met him. And it doesn't matter whether you regard elements of the nativity story as historical fact or as poetic truth. The thing that matters is an encounter with Jesus as Saviour and Lord, and putting your faith in him. Don't make the mistake of thinking that your way of believing is the only valid way. You may be disturbed at the idea that some people read the Nativity story as poetry, because you've always understood it to be factual. That's where your faith is stick with it. No one's going to knock that here. You may have struggled to accept some parts of the Nativity story, and you may find the idea of reading bits of it as poetry quite liberating. And if that enables you to meet with Jesus without intellectual questions getting in the way, then go down that road, because he's waiting there to meet you. What Jesus looks for is genuine faith in him. 
and your shape of faith won't fit anybody else. What he looks for is a readiness to accept him, to believe in him. And a readiness to accept and welcome each other without judging each other or dismissing each other's views. And can I just say that if you have a problem with a virgin birth happening in Bethlehem, that is not a valid reason for dismissing the entire Christian faith. It goes deeper than that. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But, let me reassure you, I'm not abandoning any evangelical credentials here. Let me take a step back and say, what kind of narrative is Luke writing? What kind of author is he? How does he expect his readers to interpret and understand what he's saying? Is he a historian? Is he a novelist? Is he writing a historical narrative where fiction is routinely combined with non-fiction, blending facts about people who actually lived and events that actually happened with fictional people and details of his imagination. What kind of author is he? How does he expect us to read his gospel? And then understanding what Luke is setting out to do in his two-volume work in the Gospel and Acts, the words with which he begins his narrative are crucial for understanding what he's about. Luke is clearly following standard literary convention here in terms of his style. But his introduction contains many of the elements that you would find in prologues to historical works from his day. Other historical writers use the preface to compare their work to that of their predecessors, as Luke does. They claim a thorough acquaintance with the events they are setting out in an accurate and orderly narrative, as Luke does. And they say they're making use of eyewitness testimony, as Luke says he does. As he sets out his stall, he's asking people to read what he has written as history rather than fiction. Definitely more as fact than fantasy. Historians were expected to avoid falsehood, include truth, and remain impartial. They wrote with a view to recounting what actually happened... And their goal was to inform, not to entertain. So when Luke starts his work by claiming he's investigated everything from the beginning, that he's consulted with eyewitnesses and the works of his predecessors, and he's written an orderly account so that Theophilus can be sure of the accuracy of what he's been told, Luke assumes the mantle of historian. He expects people to take what he's written seriously. And he expects his readers to interpret what he's written as a historical record. One that's trustworthy and there to be believed. Something on which we can base our faith. Yet as well, we need to recognise that Luke was writing history in accordance with the literary conventions of his day, which are different, needs to be said, from ours. Evangelical scholars have made the point that the Holy Spirit did not inspire Luke to write his history in a way that conforms to our 21st century expectations as to how history really ought to be written. There was a difference in approach and emphasis in those days. Ancient historians sought to produce a cohesive narrative. That was the thing that they were about. And to achieve this goal, sometimes some historians fleshed out scenes and speeches in a way that would not be acceptable to modern analytical historians who restrict themselves to verifiable records. 
So it was, for example, standard historiographical convention to put speeches in the mouths of characters to record the gist of what they may well have said on that occasion, rather than relying on the transcript of what someone present recorded on their dictaphone or wrote down in their notebook. So did Mary actually say the Magnificat? Or did Luke find a suitable song of praise to put his Mary's mouth at that point in the narrative? We will never know for sure. Because actually when you start to scrutinise what is historically verifiable, you never come up with enough concrete evidence to say, I know for a fact that this is what Mary said then. But when you look at Luke, you do see that he claims to write as a credible historian. And when you look at the way he treats the sources he used for his gospel, you can see that he deals with them as a reliable historian should. So while it wasn't unusual for historians to put suitable speeches in the mouths of their protagonists, you see that when it comes to recording what Jesus said... Luke sticks very, very close to what he finds in his sources. What Marcus said finds its way very clearly into Luke's Gospel. What the source that Luke and Matthew may have shared in terms of writing the Gospels, that too is there in Jesus' words and in his speeches. Luke is not given to fanciful flights of imaginative elaboration at all. As historians go, he's on the nail. He's reliable. You can trust what he says. So what do we make of the birth narratives? Because this is where Luke really goes to trown. Mark and John don't really mention Jesus' birth at all, though John talks about the word becoming flesh. Paul doesn't really mention it either, though he does talk about Jesus uh, being born briefly. Matthew is the other person we rely on for details of Jesus' birth, and his first two chapters comprise 48 verses on Jesus' birth, including the genealogy. Luke's opening two chapters contain 132 verses. And the genealogy coming later contains another 15. In other words, in terms of information about Jesus' birth, Luke tells us three times as much as Matthew does. And how does his material break down? Four verses introducing his gospel. 21 on the birth of John the Baptist. 33 on the birth of Jesus. Six on John's mum and Jesus' mum getting together when they're both expecting. 22 on hymns of praise. And 20 on Jesus being taken to the temple when he was eight days old. Where did he get all that stuff from? One credible possibility is that he actually met and chatted with Mary, Jesus' mum. She may well still have been alive and living in Jerusalem if Luke accompanied Paul there as he claims to have done in Acts 21. And she would have been a reliable source, an eyewitness. One of the people Luke says he spoke to at the beginning of his gospel. There is a credible basis for believing what he says. Or maybe he wove his story around the elements of tradition that were available to him. When you compare his account with that of Matthew, there are a few points that they have in common. Jesus' mum was Mary. She was engaged to Joseph, a descendant of King David. She was a virgin when she conceived a child by the Holy Spirit, and they were told to call him Jesus, which they did once the baby was born in Bethlehem. Others say, well, maybe that was the kind of skeleton, the bare bones of the story, and Matthew and Luke both developed the narrative in different directions. But notice that the difficult bits are still there. The virgin birth is still there. Jesus being born in Bethlehem is still there. These are things that Matthew and Luke expect their readers 
to take on board Christmas. It ought to be a time of awe and wonder and mystery. And for some people it's a matter of willingly suspending a sense of disbelief so that they can pretend that the magic and fantasy of Christmas are real. But actually you don't have to do that. The story of the birth of Jesus challenges our unbelief. It confronts us with an unfamiliar world inhabited by angels, pregnant virgin, a God who loves us and gave his son to save us. Incredible? Well, Luke, writing the introduction to his gospel, recalls these events and tells the Theophilus, I've checked all this out very thoroughly. I've spoken to people who were there and I've written it all down so that you can be convinced that what you heard is true and you can have confidence in it. The wonder of Christmas then doesn't lie in the fantasy of Father Christmas. It lies in the reality of the story of Jesus. The Son of God really was born 2,000 years ago to save you. To open your eyes to the presence of God in this world. To open your heart to the fullness of God's love for you. Encountering this reality doesn't involve a willing suspension of disbelief, but a step of faith. Christ was born for you. It's not magic, it's not fantasy, it's not imagination. It's real and it's true and it's good news if you believe it and put your trust in him you find the reality of God's love, the knowledge of his salvation, and Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. That's what Christmas is really all about.